Jenna. And, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, Liz said a couple of years. It's been since 2016, however many years that is. It's been a while. But I've always uh, loved this congregation and appreciated being here. And so um, uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. Adrian's glad to be here with me um, and to share God's word with you. I'd like you to turn, if you have Bibles in front of you, whatever, uh, to Isaiah 43. Um, Old Testament passage. I'd like to read just verses 16 through 21. You, you might be familiar with Isaiah 43's, uh, the way it opens. It, because it opens with that, with that uh, passage about, um, uh, don't, don't be afraid, I've redeemed you, I've summoned you by name, you're mine. If you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. If you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. You, you know that passage, but maybe not this one quite so much. Isaiah 43, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. He who made a path through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. The people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. So, so a, a few weeks ago, actually, it's a, probably more than a month ago, Fifth Lent, actually. Uh, it, it, in, on Fifth Lent, this passage came up in the readings in the common lectionary. The, the churches that Adrian, we were in Tucson at the time, the, the churches that Adrian and I attend in, in Tucson. Um, you follow the common lectionary. I don't know if you ever do here. But, but in the common lectionary, you always have four passages that are read every, every Sunday. There's an Old Testament passage, an epistle, a psalm, and a gospel. This was the Old Testament passage on 5th Lent. And when the reader read it, I said to myself, I think there is a word from the Lord in this passage that needs to be spoken. And so I went home and, and looked it up and, and, and reread it and, and uh, studied it a bit and decided, yeah, that's what I'd like to do with you this morning. To see if, in fact, in this passage, there is a word for the Lord, from the Lord for us in this circumstance, in this moment in time. Let me, let me give you a little background here. So this is Babylon, probably 6th century, late 6th century, uh, the 500s, if, if you... Uh, and and it's, it's been some time since Jerusalem fell. Probably only old people are those who still remember the, the, what a terrible time that was uh, to be in Jerusalem when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked. I think that one of the things that the war in Ukraine has done, at least south of the border, I suspect also here north of the border, is to remind us of the horrors of war. Before, it was always those people over there, I think. And now we look at, 
at the television sets and we see what's going on in Ukraine and we wonder, could that happen here? And we imagine ourselves into those circumstances. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have bombs. He didn't have missiles. But he could wreak devastation. One time, quite a few years ago now, Adrian and I were in the British Museum in London and... Um, and we were walking by one of those Assyrian reliefs from Nineveh, and, and, uh, and on the Assyrian relief, there was what looked like a stack of cannonballs. And I thought, well, that's odd. I mean, I don't remember the Assyrians having cannons. And then I realized that they were skulls. And that it was the Assyrian way of saying, don't mess with us, because we will destroy you. But now, but now, Things have begun to change. The Babylonians were no longer in charge. Now we have uh, the Persians, uh, Osiris, and Cyrus was seen by some people, at least in the Jewish community, as being a kind of savior. If you just turn a couple of chapters on to chapter 45, you, you get this in Isaiah. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. You know what anointed is in Hebrew? Messiah. This is what the Lord says to his Messiah, to Cyrus, this pagan king, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, and, and so forth. There was hope in the air. Cyrus had the policy of allowing people, all kinds of people, to go back to their lands, their homelands, where they had been exiled from, to rebuild their, their communities there, rebuild their, their faith there, rebuild the temple there. But by now, the people who had been exiled from Jerusalem were Babylonians, you know. Did they want to go back to Jerusalem, this provincial place that had been destroyed? They wanted to stay in... Babylon was the greatest city in the world. It was the most cultured city in the world. Why would they want to go back to Jerusalem? And so the prophet's job here is to say to them, it's time that you thought about going back. And that's the argument here. Background. And what does he do? He, he takes them and, and places them imaginatively, at the edge of the Red Sea. Well, we don't know if it's the Red Sea. It's called the Reed Sea in Hebrew. He takes them to the edge of the sea. You remember this, the Exodus, Exodus 14, Exodus 15, that, that great old poem, one of the oldest pieces of, of, of writing in all the Old Testament, Exodus 15. And they're standing there on the edge of the sea, and in front of them is just water everywhere, water, death. And behind them are the armies of Pharaoh. They see the dust. Maybe they see the spears. And they are caught in between. And, and, and so the, the, the poet, the prophet, evokes that moment. And, 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 and he says this. He, this is old language. This is what the Lord says, who made a path through the sea. I'll come back to that in a moment. A path through the mighty waters who drew out the chariots and the horses, those are the chariots and horses of Pharaoh, the army and the, and, and the reinforcements, 
And then the waters, of course, once they're drawn out into the sea, the waters come back and destroy them. They lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. The language here is fraught. It's the language which is, which is borrowed from that culture. And in that culture, sea meant chaos. Sea meant death. Key sea meant the destruction of, of civilization. And, and the poet says, this, this is one of those cases where the translation just kind of misses it. This is the NIV. A long time ago, I was in a meeting with the head of the um, revision committee for the NIV, who was also one of my professors, um, and I, I mentioned to him that I do this sort of thing. You know, I say, translation's not good here, and uh, this is the way it should be. And he looked at me and he said, we have all the great experts in the world in the room, and you think you can say that? And I said, yep. Um, and there was another person with me who's, who's now a professor who said, Yep. Um, so, so here's the problem with the, with the translation. This is what the Lord says. Who made a way through the sea that's smooth. But what the Hebrew says is, who gave to us, gave to them, to that people standing there on the edge of the sea, gave to them a way through the sea. It's what God does. We're standing on the edge of the sea and all we see in front of us is chaos and death and behind us are the armies of Pharaoh and God hands us, gives us a way through the sea. You get the idea here. The miracle, the poet is saying, the prophet is saying, is that we still exist. We've gone through the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Pharaoh and all those other things and, and we could no longer exist, but God has handed us a path that made it through the sea. We, if I can do a little application right here, we have been on the edge of chaos for the past years. And God has given to us a way that we're still here. That's the first thing the, the prophet wants to say. We're still here. That's the miracle that we are still here. God gives to us a path through the sea. Not, not just as a church, but as individuals too. Huh? And then comes one of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture. It goes like this, 18 chapter... Or, 43 verse 18. Forget the former things. Forget what I just told you. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? Perceive it. Now, you know, you got to take that a little bit with a grain of salt because the poet, of course, the, the prophet doesn't mean for us to forget the past and, and uh, Isaiah's not saying forget all about the exodus 
memory is, is a huge part of faith. The word remember is everywhere in the scriptures. But sometimes you come to a point in the history of the church in which you have to say, we have to not look back anymore, but look forward. You have to begin to look for something new, right? Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you see it? Is God in our time? This is why I started to think that this is a passage with the word of the Lord. From Is God in our time doing a new thing with the church? I mean the church broadly, but also maybe with Willoughby. Or with you. And then what the poet does is flips the metaphor in a powerful way. So the old metaphor was <clears throat> that you are standing on the edge of the sea. And the water was the threat. You, the, the threat was that you were going to drown. These were not fishing people, you know. These were not water people. These were people who were used to the dry land. The, the, the water to them represented simply death. And so there's... But now he says, turn that around. What are we facing? We're not on the edge of the sea. We're on the edge of the desert. And the problem isn't that we have too much water, but that we have too little that we are facing a future that is filled with the desert, with thirst, spiritual thirst. You get the idea. It, let me give you an idea of what the desert represented. If you, if you go back just a couple of chapters to chapter 34 of Isaiah, there's a description of the desert which, which is picked up on in 43. <clears throat> goes like this. It's actually talking about Edom, but, but it doesn't matter. This is, this is what the desert represented. Edom's streams will be turned to pitch. Her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. Remember the owls and the jackals in the passage we read? The great owl and the raven will meet there. And God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos. You know, you know what chaos is there in Hebrew? It's tohu. Genesis 1. In the beginning, or maybe better, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth then being what? Waste and void? Tohu wavohu in Hebrew. Same words here. That God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of tohu, chaos, and the plumb line of vohu, desolation. Does it feel like that sometimes? That that's what we're facing as a church, as people? That we're standing on the edge 
of a spiritual, a vast spiritual desert. That we're faced with spiritual thirst. And what's behind us? Well, what's behind us isn't the armies of Pharaoh anymore. It's Babylon. It's Babylon. So what do we do? That's what the poet is asking us. He's saying that God, perhaps that God is doing a new thing. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. So now there's going to be water in the desert. Before God handed them away through the water, now God hands them streams in the desert. To give drink to my people, my chosen one, the people whom I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Are we at that point? And if we are, what does it mean? I, I, I want to suggest three things. The first one, this is always true when God asks a people to move. When God is saying to the church, you have to go in a new direction, there's always three things. And, and the first one is that you have to leave something behind, you know? And what do you have to leave behind? Well, you have to leave Babylon behind. That was, that was true for them. They didn't want to leave Babylon behind because by now they loved Babylon. But, but, but the faith and Babylon had gotten intertwined, entangled in ways that were no longer healthy. Babylon in the Bible stands for everything that is in some respects beautiful and also dangerous and evil. Do you know... Four chapters from the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there, there's a passage about Babylon. There's a lament, the angel actually. After this I saw, this is, this is Revelation 18, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven and with a mighty voice he shouted and now he sings a lament for Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then this paragraph comes in verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over Babylon because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes, and it has a long list of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet cloth and every kind of citron wood and articles of every kind of ivory you know, all, everything that's being shipped. This, this is the supply chain in, in, in ancient times. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and carriages and human beings. Slaves. Those who were being destroyed. By Babylon. The church, this is certainly true south of the border, I don't know about, it's, it's also true here, has gotten entangled with Babylon. In ways that when people look at and, and ask the question, what does it mean to be Christian? They don't see the church any longer, they see Babylon. We have to leave that. 
And in leaving that, we have to also leave, this is really hard sometimes, we have to leave the way that we have been the people of God. The people of ancient Israel at this point, this is one of those, those pivot moments in history, at this point, they have to leave the way that they have been the people of God. They, when they first went back, they tried to, to, to restore everything. You know, they, they tried to go back exactly to where it had been before. If you look at the, the beginning of the book of Chronicles, there's all these lists and genealogies, all of which are designed to put back into place what was there before, the kingship and the priesthood and the temple and all of that. But it didn't work. Because God had something new in mind. Is God asking us to change how we are the people of God? And if so, in what way? I think we have to be asking that question. And then, and then the second thing is to step out towards Jerusalem. This is what Jesus preached. You, you know, Jesus preached the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was asked what the kingdom of God is, he always, he always told stories because it's really hard to define what the kingdom of God is for people uh, and for us and, and so he kept telling all these stories the kingdom of God is like this the kingdom of God is like that but we have to keep in mind the kingdom of God we have to always in in the life of the church be asking again what does the gospel mean in this how do we articulate the gospel in this moment? And some of the ways that we have been articulating the gospel, which try to go back to the past, which try to preserve old distinctions, you know, distinctions of denominations and so forth, probably just don't work anymore. Because God is calling us into a new mission, into a new way to be church. I don't know exactly what that means. I, I, mean, I have more to say about that next week, by the way. You get me twice, I'm afraid. I mean, I have more to say about that next week. But I think that's something we should always be doing. The church is the place where we dream about the future. God's future. Kingdom of God. And then, and then last, we have to be the church. And to be the church means to worship. To be the church is not a matter of some kind of theological definition. I, I, I can tell you that. That's not what the Bible says. Did you notice how this passage ends? It ends in such an interesting way. It says, uh, uh, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making a way in the wilderness. And the wild animals will, will honor me and the jackals and the owls. And I'll provide water in the wilderness. I'll give you the water that you need to make your way through the desert of our time to give drink to my people, my chosen ones, the people I form for myself. Why? That they may proclaim my praise. Proclaim my praise. You know, we're such whiners. We, uh, we complain about this and we complain about it. You get Adrian and I together in front of the, uh, you know, the news and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be... Uh, complaining about it. We, we go on rants, you know, and, and, and when she goes on a rant and I say, well, you shouldn't be ranting, then I go on a rant. You know, it's, it's uh, we're always complaining. We think that it's our job to judge the world. It's our job 
to give God praise, to worship, to point. In a, in a spiritual desert, to point to what's rich and good and beautiful and lovely. Last night, I have a lovely view from my house. Last night, I was looking out at the, at the sunset over the bay. It was so beautiful. We are created to praise. Worship is at the heart of what... The church is the church in worship. Because it's in worship that we call attention, not just to, by ourselves, but to the world of the fact that there is a God, that there is more, that there is beauty, that there is truth, there is justice. All through this book, Isaiah builds towards a conclusion. And, 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 you know, this part of, so, so this is, this is, this is that, that, that little book in, in a book, Isaiah 40 through 55. And, and he's going to have to make his way through Isaiah 53, you know, the, the, the role of suffering in the world, that, that great chapter which, which in so prophetically speaks of Christ. But then at the end of the book, he ends up at the end of in chapter 55, one of the great chapters in Scripture. Isaiah 55, and, and, and this is what he says. He says, you'll go out in joy. Take this home with you today. You'll go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst. In, this, this, is, this is the people of God stepping out into the future. This is each of us stepping out into God's future. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, the Christmas tree. And instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let us pray that we can be that kind of people. Pray with me. Lord God, we stand on the edge of what looks like a trackless desert. And you say, step out, step out in faith. Give us the courage. And as we step out, Lord, let us go singing. Singing your praises as the church of Jesus Christ, as the people of the gospel, as the people of the good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.